Hello, everybody. Welcome back to On the Left, where we discuss what it's like to be a person in On the Left. And today uh, we have with us uh, my friend, my good friend, Logan Clendenning. I pronounced your name correctly, right? You did. You nailed it. Your last name. Okay. I don't. I just don't know if I've never said Clendenning in front of you or not. <laughs> Um, so we'll just get right into it. Logan, tell us who you are, what you do, just the basic, like, who the hell is this guy info? Yeah, well, um, I was a grad student in the US, uh, UC Davis uh, history department with you. And uh, my focus was European history, modern European history, with a minor in world history. Uh, my research focused on 20th century Germany. So I guess I'm a historian. Um, I taught at UC Davis. I taught at Utah State last year in the midst of trying to find more teaching or perhaps do something other than teaching history. Uh, other things about me, uh, I have three cats. Um, and uh, yeah, not sure what else to say. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I love how you said you have a PhD in history and you're like, I guess I'm a historian. That's good. Keep it humble. Um, <laughs> so um, let's start out with a brief summary of the endpoint of our story. Uh, how would you summarize your politics today? Um, I would definitely consider myself a socialist. Uh, I'm on the left as this podcast uh, has already, the name of this podcast is already spoiled, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, it's, I guess I view myself as a socialist in part because I view socialism as, you know, at its foundation as anti-capitalist. And so capitalism is a source of exploitation and brutality and oppression of both people and also just the world that we live in, the environment uh, that we live in. And so I... I'm a socialist because I'm positioning myself against the the horrors of capitalism. Um, and I also would consider myself a supporter of democracy, a Democrat, not a capital D political party Democrat, but a small D Democrat. And so I view socialism as uh, really the best way to organize people in such a way that they actually contribute to the society that they live in. Uh, that they contribute to uh, the workplace or organizations or, you know, structures that they uh, take part in and that shape them. And so uh, for me, democracy and socialism uh, go hand in hand in that sense. I love that. I think that that sometimes th that that's lost sight of how, socialism and being on the left is about being a Democrat, like you said, a small D yeah. Democrat, uh, which also recalls to mind this great moment in The Wind That Shakes the Barley that I won't bother our audience with. Just go see it if you haven't, because it's the greatest film ever made in the history of making films. Um, and it's interesting because I actually do think sometimes that gets lost, right? Like what it means to be a socialist or on the left or an anarchist, it's about being a Democrat and believing that democracy is the most just way to to organize society and the way to help us flourish. Yeah. So um, that's where you are now. Very nice summary. Let's go back to the beginning. When do you first remember having thoughts, opinions, inclinations, um, uh, irritable mental gestures as conservative political ideas have sometimes been called, uh, whatever. Uh, when, when do you first recall having political thoughts? I mean, it's hard to remember when I first had my own political thoughts. Um, I definitely, I guess, as way of background, I, the, the world I grew up in, I'm from central Texas. Uh, I was born in Waco, Texas and grew up in a small town just south of Waco. Uh, a very conservative part of the country. Um, I grew up in a, a small town called Bruceville, which was half an hour away from Crawford, Texas, which was where George W. Bush's ranch was. Mm. So that gives you a sense of the type of place where I'm from and uh, the sort of 
political center of gravity uh, in that part of the country. Yeah. The political geography of your of your hometown is not subtle or difficult to <laughs> Yeah. Well I also map. I should I should mention I mentioned Waco, Texas, and anybody my age or older will associate Waco with uh, David Koresh, the Branch Davidians, uh, the burning down of the compound outside Waco. Uh, and I actually, that actually did not really inform my politics growing up. Cause I was about six years old when that happened. And I actually probably through, uh, my parents just keeping that away from me. I didn't really have any idea what was happening. Um, I think more my early memories of being exposed to political ideas was, uh, you know, the election of George W. Bush, nine 11 shortly after, the Iraq war sort of, I mean, I, I turned 13 at the end of 2000. So basically my entire teenage years were spent under the Bush administration. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that was uh, the sort of, you know, political world I grew up in where I started actually thinking about politics. And I remember I had, I had this memory of uh, a math teacher who, was telling us in math class that it'd be really good if we invaded Iraq because that would mean George Bush would get reelected. And I remember thinking wow. at the time, this is weird that he's saying this. This is strange. Yeah. Um, this is inappropriate. Yeah, this doesn't seem <laughs> like a thing a public school teacher should be saying. A math uh, public A math teacher, yeah, exactly. Uh, and so, I mean, I also grew up in a very religious household. I went to church upwards of three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday evenings, Wednesday evenings as well. Um, I wasn't actually, and, and I went to a Baptist church, but it was maybe slightly different from what you'd expect. It wasn't Southern Baptist in the way that a lot of Southern Baptist churches were. Um, it was conservative in a different sense, uh, in that just people were I don't know. It was a very old church. We sang a lot of hymns. We didn't sing any. Like, <laughs> people were a lot. People of were old. A lot of gray hair in the in the pews. Uh, we just sang traditional hymns and things like that. But actually, my uh, in my youth group, all the people that led things like Bible studies and things like that were actually grad students or PhD students in theology at Baylor, and they all and they all read like ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew. And we're always about kind of contextualizing the scripture we were reading. So actually, I feel like I uh, had a bit more of a critical religious upbringing than may have been the case if I'd gone somewhere else. Not to say that it still wasn't a conservative uh, sure. place, but it was it was conservative in a different way. Or uh, there were at least some critical voices intermixed in, in that right. upbringing. And that's very interesting, the difference in your church from, like you said, what we would think of as Southern Baptist. Is that because it, it it is a concrete, like, different tradition? Like, there's Southern Baptist and there's Texas Baptist. Or it was just an, it's an, uh, a, a peculiar characteristic of your particular church. There was actually a difference. There, uh, they were not a member of the Southern Baptist Convention. They were a member of some sort of different umbrella of... Baptist. So and I and I at this point I don't know the specific theological differences that would have sure characterized that, but That's there was actually though. something I've... slightly different about that. Um yeah. there's probably an interesting history there. Yeah. And so I I didn't grow up hearing sermons about how, you know, gay people were bad or anything like that. It was just very much sticking to the scripture and trying to then I guess find some sort of application to the modern world, but it wasn't infused with a lot of conservative political rhetoric, I guess you could say. Right, right. It wasn't a classic kind of right-wing evangelical um, political ideology, which we so often associate with with Baptist churches that are below the Mason-Dixon line. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, and I also find that really cool and also kind of funny um, in, in a, I guess, a, a not terribly a charitable way that 
you have these grad students teaching you how to critically examine a text. Right. And it's very interesting how that if you learn that skill at a relatively early age, there is a good chance that it will corrupt you completely. <laughs> <laughs> According to their standards, right? Or at least, uh, you know, uh, conservative political standards eventually down the road. But I love that it's got snuck in there somehow, right? It did. I guess you could say I was uh, corrupted by grad school two times over by former what? by grad students when I was a high schooler and then when I actually went to grad school. Uh, right, in, in between that, I went to uh, Texas A&M as an undergraduate. Um, so the state of Texas has two very large public schools, the University of Texas in Austin, which is more, uh, tends to be more liberal, and Texas A&M, which even though it's a very large public school and you get, you know, because there's like 50,000 or probably like 60,000 students now, you get all kinds of people. It's still a bit more of a conservative school than uh than UT, but I went to AM partly because they gave me a good scholarship to go there. And I thought, let's not, you know, if, if I can avoid going into crazy debt to get a degree, especially a history degree, um, then, then that'd be good. So I guess I also maybe had a sense that, uh, you know, if it's a public university, it should actually be affordable to the public. So maybe that was an early, uh, <laughs> Uh, notion that was uh, a seed for my later political development. Sure, an early instinct. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so once you're in college, uh, is that um, is undergrad kind of a place where uh, you are politically awakened a lot or um, or not? What, what's the story there? Definitely politically awakened a little because... Um, Definitely a little. Definitely a little. Because <laughs> there's, uh, you know, it's the, by this point, it's the end of the Bush presidency. Uh, and I am, you know, how old would I be? 19, 20 years old when uh, Barack Obama's presidency or, or sort of campaigning and election is taking place. And at the time, this does seem very exciting for a young, for a young Logan. <laughs> uh, it does yeah. seem like, wow, this is so different from what has come before. A young uh, Logan. Yeah. Logan is still young. I don't know what you're <laughs> talking about, bro. Logan, Logan, and Logan and Jenna are the babies. You're little babies. I mean, Jenna's babies Jenna's in our friend group. Yeah. Um, okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, interrupted you. But I, I, I do uh, remember being very excited by, uh, you know, what seemed like new possibilities, hope and change, all the slogans that actually seemed to have some sort of potential content, even if the content was what people were filling their own hopes and dreams with and not actually any specific mm. kind of policy agenda from uh, the Obama administration. So yeah, there was definitely, I guess by uh, the time like I'm a, an undergraduate, yeah. I had become a liberal in, uh, you know, a Texas liberal. A Texas liberal. <laughs> um, it's not the worst type of Texan by far. Yeah. There's worse things. Um, and I think... <laughs> Texas is a wonderful place full of wonderful people. Excuse me. Go on. Go on, Logan. It's true. I mean, it is also, I guess, a bigger and more complicated and more diverse place than, uh, you know, it would seem based on, you know, how it tends to vote. But also because it's one of the hardest places to... You know, it's one of the least democratic places in the country in terms of... Uh, you know, allowing people to vote or even beyond, you know, you know, democratic politics, politics beyond just the level of the vote. You know, it's the structures of, of, of power there are firmly tilted against its kind of potential political or demographic uh, <laughs> realities. Yeah. yeah. Um, so actually, uh, was maybe saving this, but we're on the topic, so I'll do it now. Um, just wanted to quickly ask you kind of about that experience um, of growing up in Texas, because I've been thinking um, a lot lately due to, by the way, Jenna's recommendation of the West Wing Thing podcast about the condescension, yeah, of the rest of uh, the country about, you know, the Midwest of South and on obviously Texas in is included in that. And 
I've just been recognizing, you know, yeah, um, even though uh, my dismissal or hostility to the Deep South, in particular, you know, Mississippi, um, Louisiana, Georgia, is not without reason, because I'm a historian who looks at politics and race, so it's just, you know, like tear town <laughs> in those places. <laughs> um, nonetheless, I am aware of the way and I should become more sort of self-critical about the way that um, I get impacted and us on the left do get impacted about these dismissals of entire populations as, as ignorant or stupid or irretrievably backward and bigoted. So as somebody from Texas, who's a great example of how that's not true, have you seen that dynamic uh, at play kind of in how people in Texas think about the rest of the country? Do you think it is a substantial impact on their politics, a sense that the rest of the country is kind of looking down on them or or not? Do you think it's overblown? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. It's so definitely one thing I can say about growing up in Texas was that there was and is a lot of Texas pride. <laughs> there was, there's a lot, there's a big foundation of Texas, just Texans just as a default being very proud to be from Texas. Right. And I find that somewhat silly myself um, <laughs> and somewhat overblown myself. Um, but I do also think that, yeah, if you go to, I mean, the, the big difference in Texas a lot of the times is, uh, you know, an urban rural divide, which is common across all of the United States. So Houston is one of the most diverse and interesting places in the country, depending on where you're going. I mean, the suburbs are super white and conservative, but then the city itself is this fascinating mix of all sorts of different people and cultures and foods. Um, and my, I mentioned Houston because my twin brother lives in Houston, um, along with my sister-in-law and niece. Uh, but yeah, so it's in terms of whether Texans feel a sense of, um, I don't know, unjust characterization of Texas. I mean, I feel like there is something, I mean, I also, something I've noticed whenever I go to other places is that when I mention I'm from Texas or if it comes up, I it's pointed out that I don't really have much of a Texas accent. Right. And I do think growing up, I probably tried to flatten out my accent a bit to try to sound, you know, if you're, if you're going to sound educated, you don't want to have a Southern draw in there because that immediately raises suspicions that, uh, uh, you don't have good book learning. Um, yeah. so, <laughs> so yeah, you know, it's, I, I do think I probably it's, it's in some way, um, maybe did feel that, uh, sense of, well, I need to make sure that I sound like an educated person coming from Texas, because right. that may not be assumed right. versus if I come and, from California or the Northeast or something. Right. And the correlation in your mind is, so for whatever, you know, at that point, you're, you're like part of your aspirational identity is to be an educated person. So maybe even subconsciously, you're flattening out that accent, which indicates, right, that if somebody reacts defensively instead of aspirationally to that, they might even heighten it, right? Or they might even reject the idea of educated people in general, right? Because they associate it with this defensive uh, stereotype. And I really, I, I know, in fact, that that you're talking about something very real. Incidentally, I was just thinking about this yesterday. There was somebody being interviewed on the radio. They had a very thick Southern accent. And I don't even remember what they were saying. But what I really noticed was right away how triggering that deep Southern, not Texas, but deep South accent right. is to me. Like I immediately kind of tense up and all of a sudden I'm getting like scenes of like Mississippi burning in my head you right. know, and stuff. And I'm like, wow, you know, um, again, it's not like there's no historical reason for these associations, but it, it, it's a problem that I hear a deep Southern accent. And I'm like, ah, bigotry, right? Like that's all I can, that my, my, I'm being, yeah, my, my neurons are, uh, making all of these really negative associations automatically. So, Okay. Uh, 
to get back to you, so you're in undergrad, you're a liberal Texan, mm-hmm. and is there anything more you wanted to discuss that happened during those years, or should we move on to grad school? I mean, I think at that point, uh, you know, undergrad, my, my shift towards the liberal political spectrum is about as far as I got in undergrad. Um, and again, maybe it would have shifted more if I had gone to a different college. Uh, it, as I said, A&M was not not a particularly radical place. And in many ways, it's pretty conservative. <laughs> uh, actually, very conservative in a lot of ways. Don't but, um, yeah. Sorry, but uh, I really, I, you know, it was, it was going to grad school, leaving Texas, going to California, going to uh, UC Davis for grad school, and really, uh, you know, going to grad school and uh, learning new critical ways to think about the world and especially just meeting uh, critical people, such as my fellow, uh, you know, cohort and members of the, of the history department, uh, grad students, that really, I think, started pushing me further to the left. Um, and I guess that also coincided with, you know, I, I started grad school, I guess, end of 2010. By 2011, we have things like Occupy Wall Street. We have a big... Uh, uh, we have a lot of organizing and uh, union negotiation from grad students in the UC system uh, and, you know, strikes and protests, things that I just really had no basis for or knowledge of in Texas. I mean, it being a member of a union was actually something that was just completely outside of my conception before coming to grad school because I, I just didn't, you know, nobody in my family was a union member uh, even, you know, I had uncles who worked, for example, at, you know, places like the Coca-Cola factory in, in Waco. <laughs> and I, I never, I never thought about, oh, uh, you know. Is there a what union? If, what, if, there? what if, yeah, what, what, is there a union? Uh, what would happen if they were actually a member of a kind of organized. <laughs> uh, uh, Workers organization. Worker, yeah, yeah. If organized labor <laughs> was even possible. And, uh, would it have been adorable if like little undergrad Logan had gone to them and been like, what if you guys formed a group yeah. of all of you that work at the Coca-Cola plant? And then you all agreed that you had to be paid more or you wouldn't work. And they would just look at you like you're crazy. Yeah, they, they probably would look like, <laughs> look at me like I was crazy. Like, uh, you know, that that might hurt my paycheck. Yeah, uh, uh, but not not to say that you didn't know what a union was, but I absolutely get what you mean because I knew what a union was too, but I didn't understand. Uh, and I think most Americans don't understand how crucial they are. It's just like, oh yeah, union is a thing that some people have or do. Or yeah, that's about and it. I think those, you know, ev- events on campus, events nationally, the sort of disillusionment with. You know, I keep bringing it back to kind of national presidential politics, but I think it does provide a kind of useful, uh, I don't know, touchstone in terms of the disappointment with the Obama administration, the seeming realization that uh, actually there isn't much of a political, you know, uh, policy-driven, programmatic vision at all. It's just a lot of rhetoric. Right. And that talking about... Uh, bipartisanship, talking about uh, the hopes and dreams of, you know, we have more similarities and differences actually doesn't do anything. And, uh, you know, is is also just simply not true because it's <laughs> very easy for it's not the, true right, at all. the right, who is much more in a sense, or who has historically been much more organized in terms of its, uh, you know, following the lot, following the party line and just ignoring any efforts to uh, help the lives of people who aren't rich. Um, yeah, it's always the Democrats that are talking actually about unity. The only time the Republicans talk about unity is when the Democrats are doing something they don't like and they say yeah. this is divisive. Um, and I just wanted to also touch on that. You mentioned it at the beginning as well, the the rhetoric of the Obama administration and you use the phrase twice hopes and dreams and you're exactly right that before you said something like there's no content to this. And I'm like, yeah, you know, the Obama administration was like, 
uh, aspirational Mad Libs, right? It's like fill in hopes and dreams here, right? <laughs> you exactly. know, uh, into this blank, and it won't happen. But we are going to uh, use rhetoric and use an outside wrapping paper that will make you think that's what we're talking about when we're not at all talking about anything at all. Exactly. Yeah. So that was supremely disappointing, and I guess other things that. Uh, influence my politics aside from you know the the cool and smart people around me like like you and other people uh, I think you know I my research was on was on 20th century Germany I got to live in Germany for a while live in Europe mm-hmm. and you know I don't want to romanticize Europe too much uh, sure. and you know there's plenty of problems there's also the rise of things like far-right xenophobia and stuff happening there right but it did, I guess, uh, reveal, you know, <laughs> just some of the simple possibilities that, uh, you know, having a strong welfare state. Um, and it's not know, that hard. It's actually something that, <laughs> it's, there, you know, there's been a real existing welfare state in a lot of Europe for right. like 70 years at this point. Right. It's absolutely. actually not even radical or utopian. 100%. Um, and I, you know, I remember I was in Germany actually when the Bernie Sanders uh, campaign was getting off the first round. And, you know, it was actually kind of interesting to observe that from afar because I was really interested in it, but also I felt a little bit disconnected from, uh, I, f- I feel like the people in the U S who were uh, supportive of, of Sanders were even more excited and thrilled by the possibility of him uh, than I was. Like I was trying to really c- connect myself to what it must've felt like, you know, actually attending something like a, a Sanders rally or something like that. Yeah. Um, but I also remember talking to some friends of mine in Germany who were like, yeah, we'd love it if Sanders could be the president, but we don't think it's actually going to happen. And I was like, Oh no, come on. It, it could happen. <laughs> So, I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, skepticism in some ways from Europeans understanding the political realities of the United States. But, um, yeah, I think just campaigning for, uh, you know, Medicare for all or, um, you know, actually the first president that I can think of in my lifetime who didn't actually talk about the middle class, but talked about working Americans, the working class, because it made me realize, oh yeah, of course, every single, uh, you know, presidential candidate and president always focuses on uh, the the idea of the middle class can't fall behind. Drives me crazy. And of course, we have have an extremely, uh, you know, we have a huge gap between, the wealthiest and the poorest Americans, and uh, we're we're never actually talking about it in the United States, right? Um, so I, th- I found that very refreshing. It's also very American, and I've been thinking about this a little bit lately about of how one of the reasons we talk so much about the middle class now is ever since World War II, it's almost like the working class have been culturally defined out of existence. Everybody yeah. wants to be middle class. Everybody thinks they're middle class. Um, and for a while, you know, the, there's this historical experience of the working class as it was understood to be the working class at the time, moving into the middle class. Mm-hmm. But ever since that's happened in World War II, and also the unions became very corporate and very kind of corrupted by, um, let's not strive for industrial democracy, let's just make sure our wages keep up with inflation kind of thing, Um the unions became also kind of culturally middle class. And so just the whole idea of the working class is so uh, fragile and thin in the United States, I feel like. And, but it's hilarious and frustrating to hear. Therefore, candidates, politicians respond to that because they're like, it's the middle class, it's the middle class hat. And like, wait a minute, by definition, shouldn't we first and foremost be worried about the working class or the fucking poor? which are also the working class, by the way, they're not like two separate groups of people, like poor people work. Right. Right. That's a really good point. I mean, you're absolutely right that there is actually very little working class self-identification in the United States. And it's partly because it's been so stigmatized for so long. 
Um, and that's, I guess, also coming back to this, I mentioned, you know, something like the welfare state, you know, the U.S. version of the welfare state is essentially, you know, to stigmatize things like unemployment, to stigmatize poverty and poor people, to try to, you know, give them very little, if any, to survive so that they, uh, you know, either pull themselves up by their bootstraps or just don't survive. Right. Um, and, but yeah, that's, you know, that's an economic project, but also it is a kind of cultural project as well. And yeah, there is very little, you know, I remember in uh, TAing for some history classes where the professor asked, um, you know, who here actually identifies as middle class? Every raises their hand. Who identifies as working class? Nobody does because nobody you know, yeah. up until recently, even thought about those terms in the United States very much yeah, as, as a kind of default, at least. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's, um, I guess, a further aspect of, of, you know, how aspects of my politics um, develop. Yeah, absolutely. School. And being in being abroad during during that time. It'd be very interesting seeing it from a European perspective. Um, in addition to your experiences of being abroad to study, was there anything about what you were studying that uh, you made connections with politics or informed your politics, or were they just kind of worlds apart? Because sometimes they are just worlds apart, but sometimes not. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, I guess I could explain what I was researching. Um, Do it's really fun. <laughs> I, I guess uh, maybe a way of introducing it is actually to talk about. So it, it spanned roughly a hundred years or so, and actually I concluded with looking at sort of recent political debates in Germany oh, uh, cool. that centered around, in particular, um, concerns about and debates about uh, Muslim immigrants to Germany, particularly Muslim uh, school children, school children and girls. Uh, and debates in particular about things like physical education and swim lessons and the wearing of kind of full body bathing suits to protect kind of Muslim standards of modesty and decency among uh, school children and women as well versus kind of uh, a lot of rhetoric from uh, the political sphere and uh, the state in Germany that this is a kind of lack of uh, proper integration into German society and kind of secular norms of, uh, you, know, you know, public displays of religion and things like that. So essentially I used uh, debates around things like swimming lessons in schools to address broader political discussions about uh, issues of gender, religion and secularism, um, and the politics of, of the kind of public display of the body. And I actually traced a much longer history of those debates all the way back really to the early 20th century. So after World War I, there are uh, concerns from the kind of conservative right about the emergence of uh, men and women swimming together or even the emergence of things like nudism, uh, which was very prominent in, in Germany uh, I'm around Germany, that time. Party. In, uh, I have a chapter on the Nazi period where I look at uh, the exclusion of Jewish uh, swimmers from, you know, beaches and public pools. Uh, I, you know, I look at the aftermath of the Second World War as well, where these kind of standards of decency uh, and debates about gender and the public exposure of the body uh, raise all these questions about, um, I guess, Germanness in some sense. So yeah. essentially my research was focused on the politics of gender and the body and race. Uh, but I used the as a kind of specific set of case studies around uh, public swimming and bathing areas to address those, uh, those bigger questions. And so, yeah, I mean, there is in, in some sense that I, because I brought it all the way up to the present, I also looked at some of the, uh, the limits of, you know, German, uh, I guess, German liberal secularism and the f concerns and fears about immigration and, and Islam in general. I mean, in some ways, it's, it's, it was still better there than, say, in France, where there was actually outright bans on things like uh, wh what's called the burkini, which is actually what it's called. It's just a full body bathing suit uh, that, you know, there were famously a few years ago, some French beaches that uh, banned 
Muslim women from from wearing those. And in general, there's a, a le, there's less tolerance in places like France of public displays of of religiosity in general as a sign of uh, you know not fully culturally integrating into into Europe Frenchness yeah, yeah. Frenchness Germanness etc um, and so that I guess also you know I, I, I of course tried to approach that especially more recent debates in as objective way as I could mm-hmm. but also I it was interesting I guess from an American perspective because in some ways you know, Americans have a different relationship to that tension between religion and secularism. It's not necessarily, at least the ideal is not freedom from religion, but freedom to practice your religion. Mm-hmm, right. And I yep. can't, I could imagine if even at, you know, uh, you know, maybe even at a public high school in Texas, if somebody said, well, I don't want my uh, daughter to have to, you know, wear this outfit that exposes her body in a certain way for religious reasons. I, I get a sense that many schools would be like, okay, we'll find some other way to, to work around this issue. Oh yeah. Rather than seeing Absolutely. it as something that is so uh, distinct from a sense of <laughs> cultural or, right. or uh, national identity. Um, 100%. I think that, um, yeah, viewing, viewing the, uh, Islamophobic dynamics in Europe had to be really interesting. I mean, it's interesting to do as an intellectual exercise and from a distance, but particularly also being there because you're absolutely right. There is this common thread of Islamophobia going on, but it is manifested quite differently uh, in a lot of European countries than the United States, right? Because we do have this really deep-seated tradition of individualism, which means that that bigotry and that ignorance, which is absolutely there, but it gets expressed differently, maybe in certain ways less overtly than, than it can in a place like France. I don't know. I'm just kind of... Yeah, it's it's a- approaching the issue from a different uh, starting point in some senses. Um, it's almost like I feel like in the United States, it's more about race and a kind of Christian whiteness. Where in Europe, there is this, uh, like you said, sort of cultural pressure and expectation that you are a certain amount of secularized, right? Right. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, that would have been that would have been really enriching. I, I think for for you to constantly be. Ha- having that kind of cross-comparative dynamics in your head because something about Americans, it's very easy for us to just forget about the rest of the world. Um, and it's it's very annoying, I include for myself, you know, when something happens somewhere and I realize it's big enough to make the news. And I'm like, I have no fucking clue, A, what this place is, <laughs> B, what its history is. So embarrassing. Um, okay, so that's important in grad school. Anything else that kind of really stands out to you that you would want to discuss before we get to some more abstract or generalized questions about your personal journey and how they informed your your political views? Hmm. Not sure exactly. Maybe 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 the next abstract question will spark the most the excellent. Train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So the next abstract uh, question is. Um, in so far, it's a really two-part question. First, in so far as we can grow the left, right? Bring more and more people into the left. And so the question one is how possible is that, right? As individuals, what can we do? Um, in so far as we can, and you could just say we can't in, in the conversation there. Um, what would you recommend? <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, yeah, everyone has a hard time with this one. Yeah. <laughs> I think for obvious reasons. Because in some ways, picking up where, you know, we mentioned the kind of difficulties in even 
having Americans, for example, uh, claim a kind of working class identity. Um, I guess a lot of the historical foundations of left organizing, you know, dating back to 19th century trade unions and uh, socialist parties or later communist parties, um, a kind of international sense of, of solidarity and worker organization at a global scale. A lot of that has been uh, damaged or broken <laughs> over the past right. many decades. Um, right. And so there's a lot of work to be done. And also the type of, the type of work of bringing people to the left might then necessarily look a lot different than it did in that kind of classical sense of, you know, this is what it means to have socialist international solidarity. Um, I also, I don't know. I also worry a little bit about the, the shift towards things like this is something just very recent, but you know, the shift towards things like remote work, making it, where you can actually never encounter your own, uh, your fellow employees and you just never have any sense of shared, right. Uh, shared space. Working. Shared yeah. Struggle. Space. Exactly. Uh, but anyway, that's something maybe to leave aside. So I think, but I also think there are, there are signs of hope. There are signs of possibility. And I, I guess, again, maybe bringing it back to a point raised before the, the fact that, uh, you know, certain forms of ensuring people have a basic quality of life and, you know, maybe don't go into millions and millions of dollars of medical debt or student debt or whatever is actually something that is, that already exists in many parts of the world. And, this, I mean, th this sounds actually maybe less ambitious than is what is required in uh, the 21st century where, you know, the world as we know it is is getting hotter and hotter. But, um, you know, in some senses, there are just many pragmatic and practical arguments to be made that, uh, again, particularly coming from an, an American perspective, th the society that we have here, the way it's structured uh, does not have to look like that at all right? because so many other parts of the world have, have addressed these uh, particular uh, issues around, you know, healthcare around, uh, you know, funding education, things like that. So I guess one way to potentially make our case as leftists is to organ organize around, you know, something like the Sanders campaign did organize around, real concrete possibilities that actually can be achieved. And they actually are, you know, if you, obviously we can't really trust polls that much, but actually are seem, seem to be pretty popular among uh, Americans in general. Yeah, no, they are. I was, I was going to mention that while you were talking is that it's political scientists have demonstrated this over and over again. It's abundantly clear that if you ask, you know, Americans, uh, you know, universal health care, do you want it? Um, yeah free education, do you want it, right? Uh, a basic safety net for all families, do you want it? They're all individually overwhelmed, like very popular ideas. Part of the problem is that we don't live in an actual democracy. And so the will of the people is not enough. That's true. There's other problems too, but that's a big, yeah. that's a big part of it. And I guess as well, you know, now under a, a Biden administration, I mean, there are already issues emerging around, uh, you know, reducing what was promised in terms of stimulus checks. Um, the whole the whole means testing of uh, giving people money. Well, let's make sure we don't, you know, we make sure we everybody meets these certain qualifications so we can get the money. It's like. It's so insane. No, we don't need a, and that's a very kind of liberal capitalist approach to social issues. We have to mean test, mean test everything and then uh, help people instead of a kind of more universalist 
social democratic or socialist model, which is uh, we actually need to make sure that everybody is taken care of, that their right. basic needs are met so that they can, and, and even beyond that, so that they can actually flourish as human beings. Right. Um, and that it's funny because usually the liberal capitalistic and conservative view is yeah. that the boat that lifts or the, 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 but like the water rising that lifts all boats is like the GDP or the economy. And I say, no, it's actually a social safety net that covers everybody because then you have less inequality and that makes the whole society healthier in all of these metrics that are well-documented, right? Uh, health gets better, mental health gets better, drug addiction goes, all of this stuff, right? Um, but I just wanted to real quick note and bring it back to something you said earlier when you're talking about this means tested versus a, a universalistic, universalistic, whatever, uh, welfare policy is that 100% a huge sickness at the heart of American thinking about this. I forget exactly how you put it, but what it basically came down to is we'll give you just enough money to survive if you're struggling with poverty, but we'll make sure we humiliate you first. Yes. Right. And that is just sociopathic to the core. Um, and so part it's of the stigma of, of that is the, you know, the phrase going on, well, going on welfare to be on welfare is, yeah. is like a dirty, right. It's like a dirty word in American right. culture. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely stigmatizing that as, as I guess the ultimate argument is that, you know, people will look and try to find jobs and, and become employed and kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps if we make the possibility of, uh, you know, going on welfare or unemployment so horrible, so humiliating, but also so unlivable yep. that uh, they have no choice. So that's we'll just, just a very cruel mindset. <laughs> it's yeah, so we'll just destroy <laughs> you psychologically as as uh, as the, the the cost we take for for just giving you an, enough enough to survive. Yeah. So but again, there's, some, there's um, all these other possibilities as well. I mean, just one more example. Again, the the just to give a very recent example is the this long push to raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars, and now the decision that okay, we'll we'll do that by twenty twenty five. Basically, <laughs> twenty years after this was initially proposed, right, and and, and now inflation would suggest we should be much higher, right? Right. Yeah. So I guess one socialist uh, or leftist um, uh, avenue to generating more support is just to show that this very narrow and very incrementalist view of change and possibility from liberals from the political center um, is not only not sufficient and um, you know, the more is possible, but it's actually cruel <laughs> and yeah, actually harmful. It is cruel. Uh, yeah. And just because it's maybe slightly less cruel than the conservatives doesn't mean that is, that should be the end point of politics. Absolutely. That's not good enough. Um, I have a line. As you said, as a great philosopher once said, liberalism is not enough. It is not enough. And <laughs> in, this, in the same uh, text that that comes from, um, I wrote that by the time, you know, liberalism has moved so much to the right uh, in the last half century that by the time you have George W. Bush uh, coining this term, compassionate conservative, that actually describes liberals. It's, right. it's more like a, a, a conservative who will pity you. Exactly. Yes, exactly right. right. <laughs> Instead of just like condemn you and uh, gloat why he uh, drives away in his uh, sports car or whatever. Um, so to kind of like what I'm hearing from all these examples you're bringing up and correct me if I'm wrong in summarizing is something you can really do as a leftist or, or you should at least try is take it out of this sort of abstract realm and say, look, here are some things that we can have. We can have them right now. And the Democrats are wrong when they say that this is crazy, uh, crazy revolutionary ideas. Um, and you want these things, by the way, right? Right. And um, kind of keep it on the goodies, right? Here, have some health care. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and I guess also that that approach, you know, is very much an approach at the kind of 
national political level. And also I, you know, I, you could also organize around similar issues, you know, around things like rent control, around things like, you know, local issues. You, you don't have to just filter everything through the national political uh, right. landscape. Absolutely. And, One I, of the, yeah. so, sorry, just real no, quick. No, One of the, the best uh, kind of socialist activism that um, I'm familiar, I've been familiar with just in a one-on-one basis happened in Sacramento where a group of socialists would get together and help people stop being evicted, right? Yeah. They'd show up and stop evictions and, and help them get the resources and legal work they needed to stop being evicted. And that is shows really clearly to people like, look, you don't have to read Karl Marx. You don't have to make a big decision about what you're going to call yourself or, and you don't have to understand economics, but what all you need to know is that socialism is about the solidarity that somebody just can't be kicked out of their house. They can't be denied medical care because they can't afford it. Medical care shouldn't be a source of profit. Hello, duh, et cetera. Yeah. Sorry, and you mentioned, you mentioned things like Marx and political labels and I, Part of me, you know, in, in saying that we can point to very <laughs> pragmatic and real possibilities recognizes that it doesn't sound very uh, revolutionary and it doesn't sound very... Um, That's okay. It, it doesn't maybe sound as firebrandy as, you know, some of the uh, some of the historical left rhetoric... And yeah, see, that's some the ways slogan, it's, it's, what you don't actually know is is this is a podcast to test to see how uh, theoretically pure of a revolutionist you are, and you have failed miserably. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm a I'm a miserable social democrat, which is basically a liberal, which is basically conservative. So, um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, I, I think I, that's exactly right. That we, uh, you know, I, I also would be interested to hear other people whenever you have them on the podcast if there are others who. Uh, you know, I, I described myself as a socialist. If there are those who more explicitly define themselves as Marxists, anarchists, uh, Trotskyists, I don't know. Um, Trots- and, 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 Trots- and, and maybe the specific on, yeah. reasons they have for adopting a more specific uh, yeah, a more label specific, to their politics. Uh, label, yeah. Um, I would be, I would be really fascinated to talk to one of those folks too. They're not, you know, they're not really uh, in my immediate circle. So if anybody's listening out there and you want to tell me your story of uh, your political and personal journey of becoming a Trotskyist, please <laughs> drop an email on the left 1960 at gmail.com. So um, to work towards the end here, uh, we have these pair of questions and you can answer them in whatever order you want. What is the best thing about being on the left and what is the worst? Ooh, um, these are some very good questions. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, the worst thing about being on the left maybe is that in some cases it can drive you crazy to, to observe just how much suffering and misery in the world there is and how few people seem to recognize that and how difficult it can be to <laughs> uh, affect ch- the massive change that is needed yep. uh, to actually remake the world, which is what I think ultimately the left, you know, as a political, you know, the, say the socialist leftist tradition, it has always had a kind of vision of the possibility of the future. There's always been a utopian element, of course, you know, what could that right potential uh truly free truly oppressionless society look like and obviously there have been some uh, horrific uh, you know real world examples of you know communist states in say eastern europe that uh yeah they didn't get into, it right descended into to another version of horror right um but yeah i guess the 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 scale of problems uh, needed uh, the need addressing the need changing uh, the, the, a scale that is, I guess, would require a true revolution in the way people think and the way we organize our society, and also just the the limits of or or the the difficulty in achieving that. Right. Um, yeah, it can feel overwhelming and just impossible. Yeah. 
the best thing about being <laughs> on the left is that there are, you know, finding solidarity, finding people who uh, have, you know, had the scales fall from their eyes and who have, <laughs> who have uh, begun the work of trying to, to reshape the world or trying to just, you know, even at a smaller scale, trying to uh, help those in need, trying to, um, you know, work towards a shared kind of common collective goal. Um, and I guess that, that collectivist, that uh, group minded effort, and also just the cool people you meet from uh, so many different backgrounds and experiences. Um, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess, I guess the people and the collective effort uh, among those people. 100%. The community, man. The communities. <laughs> um, excuse me. So to wrap up, would you have anything that you would like to recommend for anybody who may be listening to this TV show, podcast, book, and it doesn't even have to be uh, something that would be of interest to the left in particular. It could just be something you're really enjoying, uh, but it's up to you. What would you recommend? Hmm. Well, um, I... I have a couple of things I would recommend if that's okay. Um, two is fine. Two is fine. Okay. Uh, let's see. <laughs> well, I don't know if this is, I guess maybe based on my uh, training as a German historian, the show Babylon Berlin on Netflix is, is really great. Yes. It's um, oh God. And you know, it looks I at the Weimar Republic uh, at this point, you know, you know, before the rise of the Nazis, it gives a really interesting glimpse into one of the most interesting places uh, in recent history, which is 1920s Berlin. And um, the the intrigue and the complexities and the uh, uh, also there's the political complexity of the period, which is something that I think it captures well and is something that the historical literature on the Weimar Republic is really emphasized for the past few decades. And it doesn't fall into the trap of viewing something like the rise of fascism and the Nazis as this inevitable product of a society that was, uh, you know, fundamentally from its beginning teetering towards authoritarianism or fascism. Um, right. Absolutely. And I would like yeah. to second that, that, Babylon Berlin is one of those examples of, uh, you know, the few movies and shows that I would recommend not just to illustrate uh, a knowledge that you already have about a particular historical time and place, but I, I genuinely feel like I understand German history better because of this show, because it puts some, particularly for an American, you know, maybe it might not be so much such a difference for Europeans and obviously Germans, but as an American, it puts some flesh onto the bones of types and, and developments that I had basic knowledge of, but I didn't really get in the way that you can, you know, you understand something that you're more familiar with. So for me, it was amazing like that. Yeah. It's, it's, very well done. Entertaining, fucking mixed amazing. with uh, yeah, folks. Educational, fucking amazing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thing number two. Um. Well, I I do have another show on Netflix that I, I'm somewhat hesitant to recommend because it's going to sound kind of lame. Oh, go it for is, it! But that it makes is me interesting. I'm because in some ways, you, know, you mentioned uh, the West Wing thing podcast, and I guess there's been a lot written and discussed in the last several years about the uh, the troubling effects West Wing liberal politics or West Wing liberalism has had on a kind of liberal mindset in general, especially in the United States. Right. And there's a a Danish politics show called Borgen, B-O-R-G-E-N, that is essentially 
a much better version of the West Wing because it's center. It, it's not super left or socialist, although the main character is the head of a party that's called the Moderate Party, but she forms a center left coalition <laughs> with with the Green Party. I love party. that. That's so straightforward. Yeah, with the Green Party and with the socialists, and actually goes about shockingly enough using political power to try to make society better. All right, all right, all right. Tries to address things like environmental uh, problems, like uh, you know, ensuring that the right doesn't privatize the social safety net and welfare state. Even addressing uh, Denmark's kind of troubled relationship with Greenland and its mainly indigenous population. It's again, it's not a it's not a super radical vision of politics, but it's a center left kind of progressive progressive vision of politics in which. Things are actually achievable and power is to be used to try to affect your own. There's actually ideology. Right. Absolutely. It's not just uh, speeches and then uh, explaining things to women. I said. Exactly. Um, And oh, yeah, she is a woman, the the prime minister who is uh, in charge. And so so it also, you know, it also does feature some pretty big actors that people you've seen in like Game of Thrones or Westworld, some some Danish actors, which show up and you're like oh i, I recognize that person okay um, again, that, I, you know just i feel like it, it connects to some of the the things i've talked about here where <laughs> obviously we need radical change but even you know baby steps baby steps are so possible <laughs> <laughs> that uh you know this this gives a vision of of a functioning center-left uh parliamentary democracy and you know what? In the American context, it actually is something. It's funny. I was listening to a West Wing thing podcast episode yesterday, and they were making fun of Bartlett saying, well, that's something when they had done absolutely nothing. But this actually is kind of something if you could, if you could actually get people to be like, oh, this is not how things have to be. And, oh, when your political party is in power, you do not just sit there and inanely talk about bipartisanship and compromise when the other party is a bunch of fucking sociopath nihilists. You fucking use your power to do something. Exactly. I'm uh, bleeding into ranting now. So (laughs) I will cut myself off. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, thank you very much, Logan, for coming on. Thanks for having me. And yeah, and uh, we will talk to you guys, whoever the fuck you are, next time on the left. Uh, You're very special, and we love you.